0: Lord, thanks for all the ways you bless us. And we entrust ourselves in this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the second to last book of the major of the the minor prophets. Our series has been called uh, Majoring on the Minors. We're in the book of Zechariah this morning. Uh, Three weeks ago, I think, was the last time we were in this series. In the book of Haggai, Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. In the book of Haggai, we talked about that the rebuilding of the temple had started, but then it had stopped, and God was reproving Israel for not taking up that role, that work again. Zechariah is in the same time period as Haggai was, so it's the same people at the same time around 520 B.C., Zechariah is 14 chapters long. It's one of the longer of the minor prophets, and it has eight key visions in it. Most of those we will not touch at all this morning. Um, Zechariah is one of those books that as you read through it may be confusing because there's vision after vision, and sometimes you're not sure what to do with all those or where those fit in in the grand scheme of things. There are three key points that we'll focus on this morning, though. I think that as I've read through this repeatedly, three key points that I think if we get these, we've, we've summarized Zechariah in some minimal way at least. The first is this. In Zechariah, God calls the faithful who've already returned back to repentance. This is interesting. They're already doing the right things, and God calls them to repentance again. That's one. The second one is this. That even in a day in which it looks like things going on are insignificant, God says he's at work and he's pleased. And the third thing is this, that whatever the past or the present has, God says the best is yet to come. The future glories are going to be better than the past. Listen to what Kenneth Barker in his Zondervan NIV commentary says also. Zechariah is one of those books that you wish you had more time for because it is so packed with uh, important passages. He says this, Zechariah is probably the most messianic. That is, it talks about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, more. Apocalyptic. Uh, you know, the book of Revelation is called the Apocalypse. Uh, it's the unveiling. And eschatological, it has to do with end time things, of all the Old Testament books. The prophet predicted, this is a short list, Christ first coming in lowliness his humanity, his rejection and betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, his being struck by the sword of the Lord, his deity, his priesthood, his kingship, his second coming in glory, his building of the Lord's temple, his reign, and his establishment of enduring peace and prosperity. That's just a real brief summary of the things that are packed in to these 14 chapters. Zechariah really is one of the most important of the Old Testament books in terms of its prophetic content and especially related specifically to Jesus the Messiah. If you've not read Zechariah, or if you've not read it recently, I'll bet that some of the passages in it that you would know by reference. Let me read you just a few about this one is Zechariah 9:9. 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, he is just and endowed with salvation humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, on Palm Sunday every year, this passage gets read. It's included in the New Testament. It's the, it was literally fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Zechariah 11, 12 and 13 says, I said to them, if it's good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver as my wages. 30 pieces of silver was the common price for a slave. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And again, as you read the New Testament account of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, it's exactly here. The price of a slave is what Jesus was sold for, and those 30 pieces of silver were thrown to the potter's field. Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced. When Israel's Messiah comes back, it's a pierced Messiah. This is, again, one of the better-known verses out of Zechariah. And then Zechariah 13:6. One will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends by the way, this has nothing to do with the rest of the book, but Oscar Wilde has a delightful little story called The Selfish Giant, which takes up these themes out of Zechariah, which is just a great uh, picture or portrait of Christ. So three key themes we'll look at, 14 chapters, eight visions, uh, messianic. We'll we'll end on what I think is for me is the highlight of Zechariah in the last point. Uh, the first point, a call to repentance and breaking from the past. will start right in chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, uh, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers, therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Don't be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented, in other words, when it was too late, and said as the lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds so he has dealt with us the book opens with this call to repentance now remember who this group is that god's talking to through zechariah this is the group of people that left really the relative comfort of babylon remember that they've been there about 70 years and they've they've had children and they built houses they own property Life is fairly good. And, and by the way, we've pointed out before, you know that from the Babylonian captivity, Jews lived in Iraq until World War II era. This same group, from the same group. This group was the one that left. They left the comfort of basically life as they knew it, and they came back to Jerusalem. And remember what they came back to? They came back to a city, a heap of rubble. That's what they came back to. They left life that was relatively good, relatively easy, to come back to work hard to rebuild a city of rubble and ruin. So when God talks to them about repentance, He's talking to the group that's doing the hard work. So it's not as if these are the guys who stayed in Babylon, kind of sitting on their haunches. No, these are the guys who got up and made the journey back and started the hard work. And it's still the group to which God's saying, you need to repent. You need to repent. It appears that this is the case. Do you remember when we talked about Haggai that as soon as they came back, they rebuilt an altar and they started sacrificing again. This was good. And they laid the foundation of the temple. So they got right to business. They said, God, you're first. We build an altar. We reinstitute sacrifice and we lay the foundation of the temple. So that was good. But then through some letters and through some antagonism of others, the government said, you've got to stop that building process. And so they did. But then the years rolled by, and the years rolled by, and they kind of forgot about God and his things. And so God says to this group, through Zechariah again, as he had through Haggai, hey, guys, you've got to change your ways. You gave up, and it's time to get back in the program. You returned physically, this is good. You started the work, that was good, but you gave up. And your heart is not mine. God says to them, return to me personally. You know, it's often easy to return in the form of a thing. You know, you read in the New Testament when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he quotes Isaiah and he says, "This people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far away." Or think of this too, in the days or the years or the decades preceding the fall of Jerusalem 70 years earlier, think of this, the temple was up, Solomon's temple was up. The sacrifices were being given. The priesthood was in force, everything was going on, and yet God said of all of it, I'm bringing it down. You're not doing it for me. All the religious form, the outward appearance was all there, but not the inward reality. It was religion without spiritual reality. It was going through the form of religion Paul talks about in his epistles. You you can have an appearance of religion without the reality. And apparently that was the danger here. And as you read your Bible, when you read when God starts a work, almost inevitably you'll see this, that he requires it to be laid on a firm foundation so that God's judgment against his own is almost always the most stringent when he starts something out. You Go back and look at any of the Old Testament developments and you'll see this is true. So when God brings Israel into the land and Achan breaks one little, little uh, command, God, God cuts them short right there and they lose a battle. If you go into the New Testament when the church has just begun, Ananias and Sapphira lie to Peter, and God strikes them dead on the spot. You don't see this happening later, but as God was beginning this new work, he says, it's going to be my work and it's going to be my way. And God says, basically, that means you return to me. You're not returning to a hill. You're not returning to a building. You're not returning to animal sacrifice per se. You're returning to me. And so through Zechariah, this group, they're doing the hard work. They'd come back. They'd left their homes. They're working in the rubble heap. And God still says, guys, it's not enough. You've returned. This much is good, but it is not enough. I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes it's easy for me to look over my schedule or the investments I'm making in the church or in other places and feel like, you know, God, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. You know, yes, maybe you're not getting my devotion like you used to, but I'm kind of busy and and I'm giving you what I've got and and if I'm happy with it, you should probably be happy with it too. And I think that's where these guys were at. That's where they were at. And you know the truth is, God is so great and he's so awesome that he simply will not take your leftovers and mine. It's totally unacceptable. You know, one day we'll see this. When you read the accounts in the Bible where someone sees Christ, they see God face to face, you know, they never say, I should, uh, with one exception, they do. Uh, They don't say, typically, uh, I've done a great job. You can welcome me in now. Generally, they just fall down. They kind of fall apart. They just fall down. And then God raises them up. The one group that stands before Jesus Christ and says, look at all the great things we did for you, guess what? They're not his. And he says, take off. You don't belong to me. The one group that boasts before Christ that I can think of in all the Bible are the ones that don't belong to him anyway. But God was starting this new work back in the land, and he says it's going to be all or nothing. I'm not putting up with mediocrity or half-heartedness or whatever. You're going to return to me, or we're simply not doing this thing. In Revelation 3, when Jesus talks to churches in the days of John the apostle. He goes through seven churches. Some people think these are historical representations of the church. I tend to agree with that. They were literal churches in the days in which these letters were given, but I believe historically they do tend to bear pretty striking similarities to the church through the ages. The last one was the church at Laodicea. And this was a church, Jesus says, you've got all the good stuff. You've got all the toys. You've got all the wealth. You're materially Fat and sassy. But he says the problem is you have nothing spiritually and you don't even know it. And so he says this to them. I know your deeds. You're not hot. You're not cold. I wish you were cold or hot. You're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. God is so great. He's so awesome. He's so fearful that he simply cannot accept lukewarm, half-hearted service or giving. It just does, it doesn't cut muster. The last book of the minor prophets that we'll look at in a couple weeks, Malachi. If you remember, we actually studied through Malachi a year or so ago. Maybe it was earlier this year, I forget. Anyway, when God's talking to them about their deficient sacrifices, he says in Malachi 1, I am a great king and my name is feared among the nations. In other words, you've got to get a clue on who I am. And if you do, you won't offer me these deficient, blind, maimed animals because I am a great king to be feared. And you should bring me your best, not your second best, not your leftovers. So ask yourself this, as you and I, whatever it is we're doing, whatever work we're we're offering to God, is it our leftovers? Is it our second best? Is it complacent offerings? Because even if we're... In church on every Sunday, that's no different than Pharisees. They were in the temple every Sunday and more often than that. It's not religion God's after. He's after our hearts. And amongst all they were doing, he says, I want you to return to me. Not to the stuff, not to the work, not to the outward appearance, but to him personally. Everything you and I do is tinged with sin. I don't want to convey the wrong thought here. We're deficient, and as long as we're in these bodies, we, we mar everything we do. We don't offer God anything perfectly. He makes provision for that. He makes allowance for that. But it's the half-heartedness. It's the complacency. It's the lukewarmness that he's addressing in Zechariah, and I believe that he's warning us about as well. So before God's going to allow this group to proceed in this new building program, he tells them second best, leftovers aren't enough, I want your whole heart. I want you devoted to me. The second thing he does, which is kind of interesting in contrast to this, is he addresses the mentality or the outlook that many in this returning group had. They looked around at what God was doing, and they said, Lord, it's not very impressive, and it doesn't meet our standards, and we're not happy with it. We're not happy with it. In verse 16, still in chapter 1, God says, I will return, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built. A measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. God says to this group, I'm at work. I'm present. I'm doing my thing. In chapter 4, he gets even more specific at verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel who is the governor, the political head over this group of returned Jews saying, not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God says the work that's going on in rebuilding is being accomplished by his power and by his spirit. He says, what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace Grace to it. In other words, any obstacle that might look like a mountain before Zerubbabel would just be flattened by God's power and by His Spirit. And Zerubbabel, who'd started the temple, would finish it with the last stone, and it would all be God's grace doing it God's power, God's Spirit. Verse 9 The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line. You know, when you build something, you hold a plumb line up to make sure it's square or straight. Plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. God tells the people that he really is at work in rebuilding this temple. He's the one behind it. His power, his spirit, he's the one doing it. Zerubbabel, his man for the job, He started it, he's going to finish it. There are those present, though, who look at what's going on and and they say their conclusion is, Lord, this isn't very impressive. I'm not impressed, Lord. What's the deal? Uh, If you want, you can turn to Ezra 3, but I'll tell you what the perspective is, why they think this. In Ezra 3, Ezra goes back to about 538, almost 20 years earlier from this Zechariah here. And Ezra tells us what had happened when the foundation of the new temple was laid. They set up the altar, they laid the foundation, and they rejoiced, sort of, when the foundation was laid. But this is what happened. Many of the priests and Levites, the heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. And this appears to be the the perspective. Those old enough to have seen Solomon's temple looked at the foundation of the new structure and concluded that what we're doing will not be as good as what we had. So they were they may have been quite young but they'd seen solomon's temple and remember solomon's temple would have been the most impressive building in the world in its day it was all gold inside it was shining marble outside it really the city the image of the city on the hill the temple on the hill on mount zion was the most impressive thing you could have seen and these people had seen it in their youth and now they come back and they lay the foundation for the new temple and they say this is not going to be what we had And they've left the comfort of their homes in Babylon and they've come back to the rubble heap to rebuild. And it's as if the bubble bursts before their eyes when the realization hits them, just like a a load of bricks or stones that they were using to build the new building and they realize this is not going to be what we remember. This is not going to be the glory or the size. It's not going to be impressive like the temple was before. And the wind's just taken out of their sail. And you you can imagine, uh, once in a while you have, maybe as a kid, you build up some expectation in your mind. Um, My wife and I once gave what we thought was a great present to a daughter. And it was a good present. And we gave it to them excited because they were really going to like it. And you know what? They took one look at it. And I thought they were kidding me. And they made some comment like, "Something you might as well spank me. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> but we gave them something we thought they'd really like. But they looked at it and thought, you've got to be kidding me. This is what you had in mind? I think it was Christmas maybe. Anyway, you know, here's the bubble, you know, my Christmas present. I'm going to open it. It'll be great. And they get it and they're like, oh, my goodness, you know well, this is the Jews coming back that were old enough to have seen the temple. They've got the image of their mind. We're going to come back. We're we're going to rebuild. And it'll be like it used to be. And they get the foundation laid and they realize, you know, and maybe they're looking around and they're just saying, this is not going to be what we thought it was going to be. This is going to be small. It's not going to be as ornate. In fact, you know, frankly, there's very little about this second temple in all the Bible. And when you and I think of the temple of Jesus' day... It's technically the second temple, but it's not what these guys built because Herod had totally rebuilt the second temple. So it didn't look like anything. In Herod's day, in Jesus' day, when they came into the temple, this was, again, a very impressive building. The whole temple mount was very impressive. That's not the temple they built. That was the remodeled temple. When they came back, remember, they don't have the wealth of a nation. And even though Babylon has sent back some of the treasures of Solomon's temple. And even though the surrounding districts have been commanded to help them with building materials, they don't have all this gold to line the walls. They don't have all this precious marble and all these great building materials. And it sinks in and they realize this is not what we thought we were going to have. This isn't going to be what we had before. And this sinking realization hits them and they're just sick over it. They're sick over it. God, on the other hand, he looks at the building project and he says, hey, I'm pleased. When he says the eyes of the Lord, the, the, um, how did the passage read? The, the eyes of the Lord, the, uh, these seven will be glad, the eyes of the Lord. Zechariah is a book that talks about God looking through the earth. As you look at the, the uh, visions, you'll see almost all of them are about God looking around the earth. The horses and the chariots and the angels are describing what's going on on the earth. Well, this says God looks around the earth, his eyes, his perfect vision, his perfect perception looks around at what's going on in Jerusalem and says, I'm pleased. But for these folks, they're not pleased because it doesn't measure up to what they thought it would be. Have you ever been involved in something, something big and grand and successful? and you go on down the road and your next venture is a, is a disaster or a flop or less than successful and you know what your first thought is it's not what it used to be this isn't what I had before I, I do have you ever uh, a few of us in here are old enough to be men in midlife crises maybe we're there maybe we've been there Brad you got more gray than I do Um, You know what happens to a lot of guys in midlife, Uh, say around 50? You know, the guys that do really stupid things, they leave their wives and family, they put on gold jewelry, they dye their hair, whatever. Hope none of you guys are doing that. But why do they do that? Because they hit this stage at their life in which they're thinking, gosh, you know what, I've lived more of my life than lies ahead. And I look back on my life and I say, gosh, it's not what I thought it would be. I'm not as important as I thought I'd be. I'm not as influential as I thought I'd be. I don't live in as big a house as I thought I would. I don't drive as nice a car as I thought I would. I don't have as many children as I thought I would, or I don't have any children. But but you see where that goes. You start looking back and you start saying, life's not what I hoped it would be. And you lament like these folks did at the building of this temple. And, you know, they could have been tempted to do stupid things like like guys around my age do, you know, where you pitch it to the wind and you say, gosh, i got to grab something that will make my life meaningful. Something that I'll look at and say, this was worth it. That's what's going on here. God looks and he says, guys, I'm pleased with what's going on. Not only am I pleased, but I'm the one doing it. So, when they look at the new temple and they say, God, not good enough. God says, who are you to tell me my plans aren't adequate? And this is the secret, I think, for their happiness or joy or peace. You know, I don't think God minds it when, we, when our expectation hits reality and we fall apart a little bit and we say, <laughs> where's the beef? But we've got to get past that. We've got to get on and then say, okay, so Lord, what are you doing? And this is the bottom line you and I can be as as happy and at peace and as joyful as God is if we do this, if we say God will be pleased with what you're pleased with. This makes sense to me. God will be pleased with what you're pleased with. So God looks at the building program. It's not what Solomon did, and it won't be. But he looks at it and says, I am pleased with this, and if God is my priority, if I've returned to him personally, if he's my priority... And he says, I'm pleased with this. You know what? I can be pleased with that too. I may need some emotional adjustments. I may need some time to get over what I thought would be there and isn't. But if my priority is to say, God, I'm going to be pleased with what you're pleased with, then even if it doesn't measure up to my expectations, I'll still be good to go. And guys, in this life, you know, if it hasn't happened to you, it will. You will have expectations, you will have hopes. You will make plans and they will fall flat or they will fail or they won't reach the heights you thought they would. What are you going to do with that? You've got to say, Lord, what are you doing? And I'm going to choose to be pleased with what you're pleased with. That's the bottom line. Even if they're small things indeed. The last thing is this, and this kind of buffers uh, this second point about being pleased with the small things God's doing. The last is this that the greatest is yet to come, that the best is still yet to come. They're looking around, and uh, I'm sympathetic with them. They're building out of a rubble. They've got very limited resources. There are not very many of them in the land anyway. It's a tough job. But God says to them, look, whatever you're thinking about the scale of what's doing or how wealthy it is or whatever, let me assure you the best is not in the past. The best is yet to come. Zechariah 8 Verse 3, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Verse 22, many peoples, mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That, God says, that's Jerusalem's future. Rebel heap now, the scale's not going to be what it was, but in the future, Jerusalem's going to be the center of the world. Zechariah 12, verse 8. In that day, the Lord will defend, you guys know in your Bible, if it spells Lord all caps, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, Yahweh, will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. God says through Zechariah, Jerusalem's future is going to be such that every person in it is going to be like the greatest warrior king Israel ever saw, King David. That's still to come. In your day in which things don't look so great, don't worry because it's all getting better. And in Zechariah 14, and by the way, this is not only one of my favorite uh, prophetic passages in all of the Bible, this is one of the most important prophetic passages, certainly in Zechariah and in the Old Testament. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. And this is a picture, you can read more about this in in various passages. Zechariah in the New Testament, or excuse me, Revelation in the New Testament brings this up as well. But the picture is that Jerusalem would be surrounded by the armies of the nations. And it says in verse 3 Then Yahweh, the Lord, will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet, Yahweh's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountains will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And let me just interject. You know when Jesus in Acts 1 leaves the earth, he leaves from where? He leaves from the Mount of Olives. And when he's carried up into heaven and the disciples are looking up after him, angels appear and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stare into the heavens? This Jesus will return in just the same way as you left, saw him leave. Where did he leave from? He left from the Mount of Olives. His feet literally took off from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says that Yahweh, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, will return to the Mount of Olives at his second coming. In verse 5, the tale end, then the Lord, or Yahweh my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. This is Jesus Christ's glorious return to the earth. Again, you can read about this in uh, Revelation 19 He's pictured as on a war horse. His holy ones, you know in the New Testament, those who trust in Christ are called hagios or holy ones. The holy ones return with King Jesus to the earth to deliver Jerusalem. That's the picture here in Zechariah. And By the way, if you've trusted in Christ, I assume it says when Yahweh my God returns and the holy ones with him, I assume that means you and me that those who have already gone to heaven return with King Jesus to the Mount of Olives in His glorious second coming. And verse 8, In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the East Sea, half of them toward the Western Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. This again is a theme out of Ezekiel and Revelation in which living waters leave Jerusalem to heal the nation's And the Lord Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day Yahweh will be one and His name one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. Remember Zechariah, it said a mountain will be laid low, but the temple will be raised up. It's the same imagery here. At Christ's return it says... The rest of the area will be laid low, but Jerusalem, like the temple of God on earth, will be raised up, just like the temple Zechariah was building. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. In Zechariah's day, when people are looking around and saying, this just isn't very impressive, God says, guys, this is the deal. The best is yet to come. You haven't seen anything yet. It does look small right now. It does look unimpressive, but this isn't the end. The glories of the past, they're just just shadows of what's going to come. They're not the full deal. Solomon's temple, even if you saw Solomon's temple in all its glory, that's not going to rival what's to come. The greatest thing, the most glorious past you could think of in Israel's history, Zechariah says, is going to be swallowed up. And it won't be Solomon or David on the throne of Israel. It will be God in the flesh, Yahweh, ruling from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem itself will be like that temple... Everything else laid low. Jerusalem raised up. Healing waters flowing from Jerusalem as God himself reigns on the earth. They hadn't seen anything like this. Nothing they could imagine was going to be as good as their future. So they're looking around at the rubble and at the small new temple going up and they think this is it. And God says, no, no, no. The best is yet to come. Your past, your memories, your thoughts about what would have been here... None of those can measure up to what I'm going to yet do in the future. One of my midlife crises has been, and this has been with me for a few years, I've looked back over my life at times and I thought, thoughts like this, God, I always thought somehow I'd be more important. I thought my life would be bigger. I thought I would do more things or I'd go more places or whatever. And I look at my life and I say, gosh, it feels kind of inconsequential. But think of this. And I'll bet you do too at time from time to time. You know that life's not what you hoped it would be, that it's not what you thought it would be. But think of this. If you've trusted in Christ, no matter how insignificant your life looks right now, just like those Jews looking at the temple that's going up saying, boy, it's not much, Lord. You might be happy with it, but it's not much. Just think of this. If you're a Christian, your future is no less glorious than what God is describing here for the new Jerusalem when Jesus returns to the earth. In fact, think of this. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ has personally promised you that you'll sit on His throne judging and ruling the universe and that you'll see Him in His glory and besides that, that you will actually take on His appearance. When we see Him, John says, we'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He is and we'll be transformed into His image. Mortality doesn't become deity, but we become transformed into the image of Christ. That's your future. That's the future of all of us who've trusted in Christ. So if you look around at your life here, and you say, it's not what I thought it'd be, it's not what I hoped it would be, looks kind of inconsequential, doesn't look very impressive, just remember this. You have a future that the time on this earth could never measure up to. And if you were the wealthiest person, the best looking, had the best kids, smartest kids, drove the nicest car, lived on the highest hill, whatever you can think of, they'd all pale compared to what Christ has prepared for us in glory to come. It's not pie in the sky when we die by and by. It's reality. That's your future. That's your future. Your past, your present, no matter how good it is, it'll be forgotten when God's future glory just overwhelms it. You guys know if you go out like I do every morning, I look at the stars. But you know what? As soon as the sun's up, can you see those stars? Not one. Because the glory of the sun just wipes them out. I love looking at the stars. But you know what? The light of the sun is so much more magnificent, it just wipes all those stars out. And for you and I, no matter how good, or, excuse me, or how small or insignificant our lives seem here, your future is the sun rising. It's Christ, the day star rising with healing in his wings, Malachi 4. That's your future. You're going to be with him. You'll be the holy ones coming back with him. You'll be transformed to become like him. Nothing you can think of on this earth is like your future and mine and all those who've trusted in Christ. It's getting bigger and better. Think of this. If God can take a little bread and a few fish and make a feast, you know, he can probably take your life and mine and and do something noble with it, do something good with it, doing something that would impress even you or I on a hard, cynical day. Don't you think? So, your best days and mine are not behind us. And their best days were not behind them. And this is the secret, I think. This is part of the secret for us. If you want to live happy, fulfilled lives on this planet, do this. Be pleased with what God's pleased with. Make God and his focus your focus. And remember this, no matter how hard or how difficult or how inconsequential your life may seem at times, remember this, that the best is yet to come. Let's pray. God, I'm floored that you'd make promises to pipsqueaks like us. And Lord, when I see my behavior and my attitude at times, I, gosh, thanks for dying for me and for us. And, Lord, um, on a good day our lives might seem and might be, Lord, in the larger scale of things on the earth might be inconsequential, and yet you've reached down at the price of your Son. You've covered our sins with his life, his blood. You've redeemed us to yourself, and you've promised to make us kings and queens with Jesus Christ, the great High King. Lord, we'll return with him. We will rule and reign with him. We'll see him face to face. And all our hurts, Lord, all our disappointments will be swallowed up by his ultimate reality and glory. God, help us to live this life on earth as those who know you, as those who see what you're doing and are pleased with you and your work, and as those who know we have a promise and a future as bright and brighter as the sun that rises each morning. In Jesus' name, amen.